Thank you so much, Maureen. So I'm going to talk about a couple of case studies on transition. And a lot of it will be a little bit of a mirror of what Maureen was talking about earlier. And I think what's hard is that there's really no standardization for this at all. And there's no clear guidelines for anybody to exactly follow. And there's not a lot of new information out there regarding transition. And so it makes our job hard and we have to be creative when we take care of this. I have no disclosures. I had a few objectives to identify skills needed describe elements of smooth transition, and also identify elements that contribute to poor transition, or sometimes even what you feel like is transition failure. So I wanted to start with a broad definition from Webster Dictionary on transition. They describe it as a process or a period of changing from one state to another. So what's important here is not even medically, but just broadly, transition is already defined as a process and a period of change. So I'll start with a case study. MS, she's an 18-year-old female, and she's going to go to college in another state. She is concerned that her busy schedule will not allow for the time it takes to follow up with driving and appointments. And they're anxious about this big change for them. So I'm really interested in what you guys all think and recommend. And I'd love to hear from both the pediatric and the adult side what is your preference? Do you want to keep these guys close until they go through this, this one transition to college before they transition to adult care, or would you rather take them as they create this change in their lives? What do you guys think? So obviously, there's no right answer. Um, all of these are somewhat correct, and really, it's got to be Everybody's got to be engaged, kind of like Maureen said. Everybody's got to be on board and ready to help, no matter what that decision may be. So what is the child experiencing? And we've already kind of talked about this. They are concerned. They're wondering, what do I do if I have symptoms? And what are the side effects of my medications? And what can I do or not do when I go to college or when I transition? And what are the risks of not taking my medications? And maybe I can just not go to appointments for at least that first year, maybe, while I start college. Am I able to get the right resources I need? Am I able to get my refills and my medication independently? Am I able to be seen at a local hospital? Do I have my insurance card with me? Because those are things that sometimes fall through the cracks that nobody thinks about, that does my child have access to care away from me? Do they have that insurance card? Um, and do they know enough about their disease to be able to tell whoever they may be seeing what their history is? So backing up a little bit, but what do we already know about transition? There's a lot that we do know. And we know that it's a chronic, lifelong disease, and eventually we, we as pediatric providers must let them eventually go to adult providers at some point in time. We know that once they go, they're expected to manage their health independently. We know that many times adolescents preparing for transition lack those self-management skills, as we heard in that first education talk this morning. And we also know that the impact of unpreparedness can have serious consequences. We know that there can be poor outcomes because they're not prepared to do this. We know that many times the mean age of an IBD diagnosis is around 15 years of age or sometimes even younger, and that we have to have these patients undergo an accelerated transition compared to youth with some other chronic diseases that have had the disease for much longer because of that mean age of diagnosis. 
So backing up to our case presentation, this girl presented at the age of 17. Mom was at an appointment for her younger brother who had been followed for the last one and a half years by me. And she's like, guess what? My daughter has been having bloody stools. She's 17. We live a couple hours away. We already know this. And so I went ahead and had her scoped by a surgeon in our hometown. And he believes that she has Crohn's disease, and so they referred us to an adult GI practice, which is still one hour away from their home. You have to remember, Nebraska is a really long state, and Children's Hospital is the only pediatric center in the whole state of Nebraska. The next available pediatric center is going to be over in Iowa, down in Kansas, or Missouri, or all the way in Denver on the complete other side of the state. So a lot of times we have patients that travel long, long distances to see us. And mom says, I can't get in to see that adult provider for three months, and I don't know what to do because she's still having bloody stools, and the surgeon told us she has Crohn's disease. And I'm sitting here the whole time hardly listening because I'm thinking, why did you not call me? I follow, your, <laughs> I follow her younger brother. Like, how did we miss this huge thing? So I don't know that answer. Was it a trust issue? I, I don't know. Was it just the inconvenience because she was thinking in her head, I have to drive two hours instead of one? We have no idea. So we added her onto the schedule urgently. She wasn't with mom that day, but we saw her. We reviewed the outside records, and we found that there were never any infectious stool studies done. Biopsies were taken just from the duodenum, TI, and cecum, and they revealed only acute colitis. She had previously been healthy. She had a two-month history of urinary urgency, abnormal menses, a stool pattern that was increased from baseline, and accompanied by urgency to nesmus and pain. We know her family history with a sibling with Crohn's disease, and she has a paternal aunt with celiac disease. Fast forwarding to the time of her transition, when we're talking again about where I'm going to college, what do I do? She had been, in our practice, found to have rectovaginal fistula. She had failed infliximab monotherapy. She had failed infliximab methotrexate combination therapy. There was an attempt for enteral nutrition with noncompliance. She had been often on prednisone throughout her course, but currently she was on adalimumab, 40 milligrams, every single week, which is not typical for us in our pediatric practice, at least, to do weekly adalimumab. And at the time of transition, she was clinically, that's supposed to say, <coughs> asymptomatic, typo. Weir was stable, and her biochemical markers were normal. So I said, okay, let's give this a try. If you guys are really wanting to move forward with this transition, let's review some GI practice locations close to you. Let's discuss these options, and I want to see her back still in eight weeks because we need to finalize a plan, and we're nowhere near finalizing a plan. So my goals were that I wanted to have a discussion with the adult GI provider that she was going to transfer to. I had intentions of sending a summary letter. I wanted to see them one time after seeing their new provider, because this case is complicated, there's multiple variables and multiple medication trials and failures. What actually happened was that her care became very fractionated. Mom took it into her own hands. She made an appointment outside. When we called to follow up, she didn't call us back. And all of a sudden, she called six to nine months later. In that six to nine months, she had been out of state and been to three different GI practices I'm guessing maybe records, maybe not at times. There had been additional medication trials. I have no idea what's happened. But she's calling back to us because she wants to know if we can help her because she is absolutely stressed, and this was a complete fail. And I 
don't know how we could fix it. So let's look back at problems that occurred. Obviously, first and foremost, medical noncompliance is a big issue, and sometimes we just can't fix this. I was completely unaware of what the family was doing. I have no idea if they got records. I wasn't able to send any type of a summary letter. Uh, there was no... There was no uh, evaluation of her readiness for transition because she came when she was 17. And, you know, this is just a year later, and she'd had such a complicated course that we had not even thought about that. And we'd never discussed what her needs in college were. So absolutely, even though we have a new diagnosis, I should have also been thinking, she's older and we need to start talking about this sooner. So where are we now? Where is she now? What's going on with her? I still see her. I saw her just a couple of weeks before I came here. And she's on to her fourth provider, which is back in Omaha, and would have been the person that I would have referred her to from the very beginning if I could have. And I still follow her sibling in my clinic, so I don't know that trust was an issue because I followed her sibling all the way through his course. So what can we do? How can we fix this? We need to apply what we know and use what we have. In the future, I think it would be great to have standardization and practices and create model care guidelines for this. That would be really fantastic for all of us to be able to do that. And we need to build trusting relationships, not only with our families, but also with the providers around us. The tools that I use the most, and Maureen had a more extensive list of tools, but I do use that NASP, again, Healthcare Provider Transitioning Checklist. I, I use the Transfer Toolkit from Improved Care Now, which is a pediatric registry database. And we have a IBD handbook that we give all of our patients that we help them fill out and encourage them to use and bring to their appointments. And that includes information on transition and the checklists on transition to see where they are with meeting those goals. So what do the pediatric providers care about? And what do the adult providers care about? Ultimately, we are all on the same page. We all want, want what's best for the families. And we want the patient to be ready, the family to be ready, and we want a timely and complete record so that we can take care of them in the best way we can. So this is another one of those things where Michelle's going to get up, because I really want some opinions on this from both the pediatric and the adult perspective. Who cares for a 16-year-old pregnant IBD patient? Does this fall to the pediatric providers, or does this fall to the adult providers? I was in this position where I did have a... An, a girl with ulcerative colitis that was 16 years old and she was pregnant. And this is the first time that it had happened to me, and I was lost. And I'm thinking, is it safe for her to be on this medicine? What do I need to be thinking about? What do I need to be doing? It goes to that first talk today that the biggest lack of information is on pregnancy, fertility, and complications. I had no idea what I was doing. And I am calling adult GI practices, and I am begging them to see her, and they will not see her. And I finally got one adult provider to say, I'll do a one-time evaluation and put in my note my recommendations for her pregnancy. And that was, and I followed her through her pregnancy, and that was scary for me. So I'd love to see more of a standardization of who does take care of these patients in the future. What about a 17-year-old going to college? We already talked about that at the beginning, and that was split. So case study two. RR is a 14-year-old male. He's got severe iliocolonic Crohn's disease with a perianal phenotype. He is in growth failure. 
His diagnosis was confirmed with cl clinical biochemical and histologic findings. He was actually admitted and received IV prednisone, and we started infliximab in the hospital, and he remains on infliximab monotherapy. We were able to start the discussion of transition approximately one year after his diagnosis when he was 15. We followed the NASPGAN healthcare provider transitioning checklist, and we documented in his chart once per year what his transition goals were. Most of us have electronic medical records, and this is not something that you typically see in notes, at least I don't. But when we have note formats that automatically populate for different diagnoses, it's recommended in our institution that this be included at least once per year in your chart in the assessment and plan where it's easily identifiable that we understand what the transition goals are and where we're at in the transition process. This helps for turnover if somebody else is seeing the patient. If somebody leaves the practice, we understand that this at least was discussed and where we're at in that transition process. So an adult provider was picked upon the uh, adolescent's long-term college plans. I, again, like seeing my patients once after they've been to that adult GI appointment. So when he comes back to get a Remicade infusion with me and, and I think that he's already been to that adult GI provider, mom goes, oh, hold up. We never got an appointment. They wouldn't make it for us because we never, they never got the records. The records didn't arrive. Okay, well, how did the records not arrive? Was that on our medical records department for our hospital? Did they get there and get stuck somewhere and they never got to that doctor? Obviously, we have no idea. But it brings into question, if we have resources, and at least at our institution we do, we have two IBD case managers, why are we sending patients through medical record departments to send stacks and stacks of records over many, many years that then the adult provider is combing through and trying to find, okay, here's this date, and there's that, and here's the last TB, and here's the last histo, and here's the immunization record, and, and where is everything? Because that's a large feat in itself. Why are we not using the resources that we have and we need to create a, a checklist with adult GI to understand what is it that you want and how can we get it to you in the most efficient way. So we need the last office visit note. We need the last endoscopy, op report and pathology. We need to at least trend six to 12 months of labs because is it gonna be a lot easier for you to print off a trend of the labs for that adult GI provider to look at and understand what's happening with anemia or inflammatory markers or hypoalbuminemia, absolutely. That's, those are the things that are gonna be wanted and necessary in this transition process that we can do a better job. And when there's a contact information number on there for our IBD nurse that the other clinic can call instead of going through this generalized medical records number that doesn't understand what we understand, we're more likely to have a smooth transition in our care. What I did that day when I found out that they never got records is I asked the IBD nurse to do that. I physically printed my last office note and I handed it to mom before she left our clinic so that she could get that appointment made based at least on my last office note that was fairly comprehensive because I thought he was going to transition last time, right? And then ultimately as we get better with the electronic medical records and we can carry forward some of the IBD history in our notes, do we really need a second summary letter? Maybe in some cases, but I think this is negotiable and I think it needs to be looked at because why are we duplicating work that we've already done? We can make this easier. 
And then I updated the plan from that day so that we could move forward. So these are things that we just kind of already discussed a little bit. So should we be sending practice records directly to communicate more effectively? We need to be very vigilant around patient readiness for transition. As Maureen pointed out, sometimes that takes longer for some patients depending on their maturity. We need to document accurately and completely in the record. Understand is there a need for that second summary letter? We need to build in some extra time for these visits. And we need to follow up on the follow through. Did, did they do what they were supposed to do? If they're not willing to come back for that extra appointment, at least have it in your calendar that you're going to follow up with them by phone to make sure that they followed through. And that checklist for record printing and sending would be extremely helpful to have as a, a standard care guideline. This is a little bit busy, but I wanted to give you guys an example of what one of my office notes looked like. And it summarizes the history at the top. It summarizes what's happened since their last visit. And then as part of that Improved Care Now pediatric registry, there's a form that you fill out every single time that you see them. And it only gets updated if you have new imaging or new um, endoscopies. And it summarizes there the extent of the disease involvement and what the current symptoms are and what the extraintestinal manifestations are. And you can dat phrase that into your note and it pulls in just like that. You don't have to fix that. And then I also summarize, and this can be copy forward until it's updated. The most recent imaging, the most recent DEXA scan, the pathology, anything that's been done on that patient along with your assessment and plan. And I would think that this is complete enough that you don't need that extra summary letter and any adult provider would be able to have a good understanding of what's going on with this patient when they came for an evaluation. So getting back to these definitions, transition is a process. We like to start that transition checklist um, from NASPGAN and it usually starts around the age of 12 to 14 but it does depend on the maturity of the adolescent. The chart documentation is very important as a step for the next person to come in and understand where the previous person was. And we definitely want the family to understand that we're not pushing them out of our practice. We're not talking about transition at the age of 12 because we think that they're going to leave soon. We want them to grow through this process because it is a process. A series of actions or steps to achieve a particular end. And this, again, is just, this isn't medical. This is just the generalized Webster def- definition. So what does our future hold? Our future really holds um, creating transition clinics. I would love to see these happen, but what are the logistics of it? It's going to be difficult to really understand at what age a transition clinic should happen and who captures the billing for this. Do people lose billing because of this? Who bills, the adult provider, the pediatric provider? Do we send a case manager so that there's at least some continuity, but there's not billing issues? We don't know these answers. And I do believe that there's a role for behavioral health. And we do have a psychologist in our IBD clinic, but she currently does not have any specific role in preparing for transition. And those are things that we need to improve at our hospital uh, to best utilize her. So in conclusion, I think that there's a need for a 
collective and collaborative approach to ensure safe transition. And I think it's an area for improvement.